the number one complaint that I hear from CEOs is our organization isn't nearly as innovative, adaptable, and inspirational as it needs to be. And the reason for that has to do with the fact that we are still adhering to management processes and philosophies of 160 years ago. We still run our organizations as if they are 18th century military campaigns. Hey, and welcome to the Leading with Nice interview series podcast. My name is Matthew Ewell, and we want to help you inspire others, build loyalty, and get results. Now, today's guest, when I was doing research and looking for potential people to be on the podcast, I came across Adam Kingle's new book, and I was like, really? Is this is this true? We're going to talk about it in a bit, and you're going to see why I was so dumbfounded at like how perfect the topic was. Uh, for the time we're in right now. And when I started to learn more about Adam, I was like, oh, I totally get it. Adam has a full career of working in innovation, strategy, culture, leadership. He really is somebody that when you want to talk about the future of work, the future of leadership, how culture might look into uh, the 2020s and beyond, he's the guy you want to have in the conversation. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time going over his resume and all his accomplishments because that will come out through our conversation. And really, I want to maximize the time we get to his good thinking. And as you know, if you're a frequent listener of the Leading with Nice interview series podcast, you know we share questions in advance. And these are actually some of the most exciting, like I'm most excited for these questions. Naomi, who works with me here, we do the research together. She was a career journalist before joining our company. And we spent a lot of time really forming these questions so that we could get the most out of these. So we'll jump right to it. So Adam, good uh, good day. Thank you for joining us here. It's my great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us where you are right now. All right, I'm joining you from Richmond in Surrey uh, in the United Kingdom, it's, which is just southwest of Greater London. Right. So when I was when I was sharing with Adam before we got on, I was I was confused because if you're uh, you know we're in Toronto, Canada, and I know a lot of our listeners are here in Canada as well. And so I for for probably the first like half of us doing prep work, I thought he was in British Columbia because you know <laughs> Richmond in Surrey. And so when he we were recording this at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and so when I saw the time, I was like, man, Adam's a go getter. He's getting up at like 7 a.m. for this podcast. <laughs> Little did I know it's actually like three o'clock or two o'clock where he is. So it's not as nearly as impressive, but still <laughs> I appreciate, I appreciate it. You're still tops in my books. <laughs> so right off the bat, I want to talk, you have a new book coming out. It's just come out it's titled next generation leadership. And we can't go any further without asking, like when you were writing this next generation leadership and researching it, pandemic COVID-19 wasn't even being talked about. Like you've probably been working on this for a long time. So now taking all the research you did, and all the work you've done, the cumulative um, studies you you have on your belt, and what we've experienced the past two years. What's changed? What's different? What's the same? 
Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you're completely right. The, the timeliness of the book is, I have to admit, um, somewhat down to chance because, of course, I started researching the book uh, over 10 years ago. So right, yes, <laughs> COVID wasn't in our, in our nomenclature. But yes, I, certainly it seems that uh, several of the trends that I had forecast uh, were accelerated by, by COVID. So, so here's, here's what's changed. Virtual work is here to stay. No doubt about it. Uh, for example, here in the in the city of London, several financial institutions have announced that they are shedding commercial real estate because they're going to make working from home or the option of working from home a permanent basis. I was just looking, I was trying to research uh, all the major companies that have made uh, the option of working from home permanently uh, a, a regular thing now. And it's, the, the list goes on and on and on. And it isn't necessarily companies you would expect. You might think, oh, sure, Dropbox. Oh, sure, Google. Oh, sure. But Capital One, Hitachi, Fujitsu, Siemens. Here, These are my favorites. The state of Massachusetts. <laughs> Even better. 50% of the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy and the Pentagon are now going to be able to work from home on an ongoing basis. You know, I just love the idea that to get my driver's license renewed in Massachusetts, I'm going to Betty's house. <laughs> not how, I know it's not how it's going to work, but... You know, she makes a mean cup of herbal tea. You do a couple <laughs> laps around the block in, in, in her Ford Pinto and you're set. <laughs> so, so, I, so, I, so clearly, you know, vir- virtual work is here to stay. Now, a few companies are taking the opposite bet. They are saying, like Goldman Sachs, right? They're saying, yes. get back into the office right now. This is how uh, creativity and collaboration happens. So companies are making big bets. And we will see who's going to be right. I suspect, however, that the companies that will be competitive, at least from the perspective of talent, recruitment, and retention, will be those who are leaning into virtual work, at least making it a partial or full option. There is something that came out of the UK. I did a, oh man, I I did a blog post or something. I feel like two years ago now, insurance companies in the UK had stopped asking for educational requirements for entry-level jobs. And I think this is in the same bucket of that, like in terms of attractiveness of a place to work. Yeah. Oh, completely. Yeah, completely. It's interesting. That point around education requirements is, is interesting. This is sort of a situation of what goes around comes around. Because here again, the city of London, and particularly the financial institutions, for many years, decades, were known for having a rich, diverse mix of employees, which they would say was at least partially attributable to their success. So you had mm-hmm. your Oxbridge graduates, and you had people who came in as you know, school leavers doing an apprenticeship, uh, many from local East London neighborhoods, so-called Barrow Boys back back in the day. And 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 that rich combination, many banks said, th- this is why we have been successful. So you're very interesting that uh, that the insurance companies are, are, are coming back around to the idea of being more liberal around requirements. So, so certainly, I think virtual work is, is key. I'll give you another reason why, and this this came out in my book. I asked Generation Y, so so millennials, yeah. what are the top criteria for you in selecting an employer and why you might stay with an employer? The number one answer was work-life balance. Number one, mm. not salary, not pension, 
not promotability opportunities, work-life balance. And we know that we are facing a loyalty crisis in the workforce. Gen Y currently composes 50% of the global workforce. Mm-hmm. It's going to be 75% in four short years. It's already well over 50% in many parts of the world. I'm thinking of Africa, for example, in particular. Mm-hmm. And you have a generation that expects that they're not going to stay for any given employer for, on average, more than three to five years. And over a third are suspecting no more than two years. So you have this massive Mm. portion of the workforce that are saying, every two to five years, I'm moving on unless you're doing something for me. I wonder if if we talk in three to five years again, Mm. if loyalty crisis has become not we don't attach the word crisis at the end it's mm. it's the loyalty solution or something we're talking about like we figured out how to either train and move people in and out of our companies more fluidly right. or we figured out a way to like make them want to stay had better development yeah i hope so you know certainly i hope for the latter and and i think the former is an inevitability mm. because we know that over 70% of the world's work occurs in projects that implies that you need a more flexible workforce on a project, working on a project-by-project basis. The gig economy certainly uh, encompasses a lot more than Uber drivers yes. and delivery you know, people. So, and, and you know, I know many people, and I'm one of them, embraces that lifestyle. Yes. But, but employers have to catch up with this trend. Yes. The employees, or more accurately, the workforce, are ahead of most HR departments uh, in, in, in this manner. A former colleague that I hired... Oh, maybe I guess like five years ago, six years ago. And we both moved on from that organization, obviously. Mm. She was telling me how she's just left. She had two gigs and they like, she's been at them for two years and she just uh, left one and that the person, uh, her boss at the one gig was surprised. And she was like, Oh, why are you surprised? Like the project you hired me, we, we finished it and now we're maintaining. So now you need somebody different to like, I'm not a maintainer. Right. And he was like blown away, just like everything. He could. And she's like, <laughs> I don't want this. Like, I don't want to sit and maintain this thing. Right. Like, what do you not get? And he was just like, he out in left field. He couldn't comprehend it. Yeah. I'm seeing that so, so much where your know, HR directors in general are just saying, help me understand the workforce, yes. particularly the slightly younger workforce. Like the, the, the most common refrain or um, perhaps complaint is the better word is that they tell me, I just don't get them. Yes. Could, could you please help us be, be the millennial whisperer for us? <laughs> the millennial whisperer. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, I was taught, we had another gentleman on um, the podcast. Uh, he's actually on the West Coast of California. He actually calls himself the undercover millennial, Clint Pulvener is his name. And he does a thing where he, you can hire him to go into your company and he like basically is undercover as a millennial and he talks to millennials <laughs> to find out what they don't like about your company. Right. And you know, you and I are probably, I'm, I'm 44. We're probably in the same age range. We are. I remember like companies, if they wanted to make, you talked about work-life balance, which I want to maybe ask you a bit deep more about. Yeah. Because companies, when we were, you know, middle management and growing growing into our full selves, they would like install a foosball table yeah. or a, a pool table in the break room. And that was enough. Or like a beer fridge because like on Fridays when we're working until 7 p.m., we could have a beer at 7. Right. And we were thought that was great. And now could you imagine? Yeah. Like if we said like, oh, come in on the weekend, we have a pool table and a beer fridge, they'd be like, I also have a pool table and beer fridge. I'll stay at home. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, but, and, and the real tragedy is companies are still ask, telling me that that same thing. So, you know, so I ask them, tell me how you're attracting and keeping your millennials. And some of them say, well, 
<laughs> Adam, we have a foosball table in the kitchen. Right. Full stop. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we have foosball table and uh, all seasons of Seinfeld on DVD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> while you're eating your lunch <laughs> <laughs> so um you know i have a few i listen i'm gonna this is where i'm gonna divert from a few of our questions because i want to dive deeper so when we talk about work-life balance today yeah what does that mean because i think everybody listening right now everybody has just in their head defined what work-life balance is for them individually yeah now when you're talking to an organization what types of things do they need to be conscious of when looking at this work-life balance I'm so pleased you asked me that question because I would say the number one revelation for me personally in doing the research is what I discovered is that there is semantic discord in the global workforce around the term work-life balance. And so when I say semantic discord, I mean people have different definitions of the phrase, and that's why it's a charged term. People get frustrated and angry because they're talking at cross purposes. And particularly, I see this this difference in the definition between generations. There are probably other ways you could cut it, but I certainly see it between generations. So typically, and I'm, I'm generalizing, whenever you talk about generations, you have to generalize, so forgive me, but typically, baby boomers and, uh, and gen uh, Xs, when they talk about uh, work-life balance, they think of that as a when statement. So in other words, if an employee comes to me and says, I want work-life balance, I think of that as, well, you want to work fewer hours. That's why I mean it's a when question. You want to work fewer hours. When I was your age, I paid my dues. I worked as long as was required. You don't want to work the same number of hours. You're lazy. This generation are so lazy, blah, 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 blah. And so it goes, right? So, so, and, and that is at least partially contributed to this misnomer that millennials or Generation Y are a lazy generation. I found that to be far from the truth. But when Gen Y, have, when I asked them, what do you mean when you say work-life balance, what became clear is that was a where statement. Mm. Right? So in other words, technology allows us to work anywhere anytime. So what they're rejecting is FaceTime culture, this idea I have to be changed to my desk from nine to five, Monday to Friday, and don't leave until the boss leaves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they're even rejecting the, just the, the generic work week, you know, right? So they're saying, look, if I, I belong, for example, to a softball league, and that is on Wednesday afternoons, I'm going to do that. That doesn't mean I'm not going to make it up on Saturday, Sunday, et cetera, because the internet, for lack of a better term, has made us connected all the time. So the fact that we're working from home does not mean we're working less. In fact, all of us who have been working from home for the last umpteen months know, and if anything, we've probably been working more. Yes. Because wh- where is the switch off? Where is the commute home that tells you it's time to stop work? Yes. So this where versus when has illustrated for me that work-life balance is a highly charged term. And so if only people would chat more about what they mean when they talk about that in their context, I think they would get a lot farther. When I, sh- when I used to share this back in the day when you know we used to speak at conferences in front of real live people, mm-hmm. I'd always see, particularly when colleagues would sit next to each other who are in different generations, right at this point, they would start elbowing each other in the ribs. And I knew at that moment, okay, clearly I have hit a nerve. Yeah. I've, I, I'm hitting on something you have discussed or noticed before. So that was quite interesting. You know, one of the things that kind of pushed me away from full-time work because I worked for a guy who on day three, he had come in as my senior, I reported to him, and uh, the office hours were like nine to five. And my team typically would come in between 10 and noon and work till six or whatever. And um, and he was saying to me on day three, he's like, you know, what is up with you and your team? Why do you work this way? And I said, well, you know, 
I don't know, we come in at nine and like nobody talks to us till noon anyway. So like, why are we here? <laughs> and then um, also like we're working on this web project and the developer is in India. So like I'm on Slack and Discord chat with him at, at 11 p.m. Yeah. So I don't know, like I'm tired at 9 a.m. And uh, he was like, what's Slack? And I was like, okay, now, now I know. <laughs> You've answered all my questions. But it was a real problem for him. And I get it. Like our parents, this would have been unconscionable. Oh, anathema. Yeah. And for good reasons. Like back then, you couldn't get a hold of somebody. They couldn't work on their projects. You know, I remember 10 years ago, so we're talking uh, 2010, 2013, maybe. I was at another organization and uh, I was working on some, uh, some writing and my communications coordinator was leaving the company to go travel through Europe. And I said, um, her name was Marissa. Her name still is Marissa. <laughs> I said, Marissa, I said, Hey, listen, what would you think? Like, I know you're gonna be traveling. What would you think if I gave you some of these, these blog posts or some of these writings I'm doing, you're a great copy editor. What if, you know, I gave them to you while you were over there. And she was like, really, you would do that. And I'm like, Oh, I, I said, I totally did not expect that. I thought you would be like, I'm going to be on vacation. Mm. She's like, Matthew, it is my dream to sit in a Paris cafe and edit copy. <laughs> that would be a dream come true. And sure enough, she did. And I would get, I would get stuff sent to me at like local time, 2 a.m. But she would send me a, send me a picture from her, like, you know, um, razor flip phone, a smart <laughs> camera of like, you know, a sunset in Paris. And she's like, oh, just, just finished your blog post on gratitude. And I'd be like, man. You are actually living the life. Yeah, yeah. I want that. <laughs> a modern day technology enabled Gertrude Stein. Right? Exactly. It's so great. Um, I want to move on. We could talk about this. Could be work life balance, could be the whole, whole your next book. <laughs> so you've probably already paused this by now and Googled Adam. I and mean, if you haven't, I pause Google him because you need to fully appreciate why I'm asking this next question. When I was doing research and preparing for this, I was like, oh man, this. This guy's legit. Like, you know, there's a lot of experts out there that have really valid experience that make great guys. What I really appreciate about you is you have a ton of like in the trenches business work and you also come at it from a research education viewpoint as well. So I'm going to ask you this question. And for those of you listening at home, listen up because Adam's going to deliver some great stuff here. You are talking to business leaders right now. So I would love for you to kind of give to us what you're hearing from them where they're struggling and succeeding and maybe pair it with like a little bit of academia. Like what, what theory do we talk about in school that you're actually seeing lived out and you're hearing both success and struggles they're having from business leaders you're speaking to today? Yeah, no, thank you. I love that question. Thank you. Yeah. I, look, the, the number one issue, or shall I say complaint that I hear from CEOs today. And and again, I think COVID has only accelerated this, this trend mm. is our organization isn't nearly as innovative, adaptable, and inspirational as it needs to be. Mm. And, you know, and so we are struggling and COVID only illustrated further uh, how far the gap is. And it isn't just that they're telling me that. I also can quantify the gap because BCG put out a survey of CEOs a few years ago, and they asked them, is innovation a top three priority for you, CEOs all over the world? And 95% said, yes, innovation is a top, top three priority for us. Then, separately, McKinsey asked employees all over the world, how good is your organization at innovation and adaptability? And 95% answered, one degree or other said, basically, we're crap at it. So it's the exact inverse 
of you know the CEO saying something is a priority and employees saying we are poor at it. I don't believe there is a bigger gap in the workforce today between the aspiration and the reality of any other condition of, of, of work life. And the reason for that, I think, has to do with the fact that we are still adhering loyally to management processes and philosophies of 160 years ago. Mm. We are still, consciously or unconsciously, managing our organization according to the precepts of Frederick Winslow Taylor, who was the father of scientific management in the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. This is the guy who said every employee is an asset, is a cog in the organizational machine which was admittedly perfect for the industrial age, right? If I'm working in the Ford you know, automobile plant, I need to put this screw in this hole in precisely the same way at precisely the same time every single time. And if I can do it even more efficiently or faster and without error, so much the better. Mm-hmm. And that's all I need to do, right? Don't think. Henry Ford even once said famously, why is it every time I hire a pair of hands, a brain comes attached? That sums up scientific management for you. I'm exaggerating. but And, and, and the funny thing is, we, you know, I think many people have assumed that because we've gone through the digital revolution, that our management philosophy and processes have changed, but broadly they have not. Even worse, it is becoming a handicap on human wealth and productivity. So I used to um, be an associate for, at the Management Lab, which is Gary Hamill's research association at Lenin Business School. And, and the Management Lab showed that probably all of the productivity growth from the internet and the digital revolution already has happened. And of course, if you look at most countries, GDP growth has declined over the last 15 or more years. So you know, more digitalization is not going to produce more wealth per se. It creates more efficiency. So it's actually enabling and manifesting some of the goals of the Industrial Revolution even more finely. But the problem is, with every passing year, because we're lazy about adapting our management to be fit for purpose, our organizations are becoming less human. So if I go back to the very first point that I made, my first claim, that organizations aren't nearly as innovative or adaptable or as inspirational as they need to be. Those three traits are all human traits. They cannot be replaced by AI or any digital initiative that you throw at me. But our organizations are still very much bureaucratic ones. And in fact, the bureaucratic machine is only growing. In the US, and I believe the statistics are very similar in Canada, the, the percent of employees who are devoted to bureaucracy. So what do I mean by that? These are back office support, compliance, internal and external, not customer facing, not product creation or improvement, is reaching 50% of the workforce. Mm. I will never believe, and you will never be able to convince me that we need 50% of the workforce spending all day, every day, responding to requests of compliance. And I can't believe that we need as many managers as we do. The, the reason, one of the reasons we have so many managers per employee in our organizations is our philosophy of management is still that that management equals to control. 
Mm. In fact, if you look in almost any thesaurus in any language in the world, and you look, look up the verb to manage, the number one synonym you will see is to control. Mm. And so if we think to manage is to control, of course, we actually need lots of managers. Because work is becoming more complex. So we need more people to supervise it. We need to control it. But of course, the more you build in control, the more you also control out innovation, adaptability, and inspiration, which is the hurdle that humanity faces to reach the next dramatic acceleration of not just wealth, but of happiness. But at the moment, we still run our organizations as if they are 18th century military campaigns. One of the ways, I mean, this is my solution to the management, I hesitate to use the word problem, the management reality today mm-hmm. is I've started using uh, the term accountabilities with managers. So like what you're accountable for is this. And that gives you flexibility and freedom to do things how you feel will extract what you're accountable for. And so I feel it gives a bit more flexibility, but I I have a lot of learning to do. Now, I love to leave people with like three things they can do right now to up their game to be better at helping this next generation become leaders. Like where could maybe like you might have tips as like, here's an action you can take right now. Here's a blog you can start reading, whatever, you know, I'm sure you have 50 of these, but just give me three actionable steps they can take. Sure. Okay. So assuming I'm, I'm speaking to, let, let's start with people who are looking after others. So if you are a line manager, regardless of, of your age, yeah. purpose is an incredibly important lever that you have at your disposal. Helping your people understand why they do what they do and why they choose to do it here. Unless you can help people answer both of those questions, you are probably contributing to the loyalty crisis. Mm. And if you can help people create a golden thread between their purpose and the organization's purpose, so much the better, right? Because then I can go to work every day saying, oh, so if I do these things that fulfill me, I help the organization fulfill its purpose. And when the organization is fulfilling its purpose, they help me fulfill mine. So you get this virtuous circle. Purpose, unfortunately, is still very much um, relegated in too many organizations to you know, words in the annual financial report or the values that you see in the lift when you walk into the office instead of it's it's actually dialogue mm-hmm. and, and particularly people who are in a mentor position or a line manager position i think are responsible for helping people to articulate and live their their purpose because this brings me to the second tip if you understand what your purpose is that immediately implies certain development possibilities for you which are beyond taking a class so that could be one of them. But often organizations eschew development because they think it's expensive. But often development could be, well, if you want to pursue your career in this direction, you can be shadowing this person. We can put you on an international secondment over there. You can do a project that, that, that touches so many of those bases. Unfortunately, still, many organizations think of development as a reward for tenure, i.e. if you work here for eight plus years, then we'll send you on this leadership program at such and such a school. And look, I have made a a large portion of my career teaching such courses, but that isn't (laughs) the only answer. It's not the only answer. Yeah. Development should be all the time and should be directly linked to how people are articulating their purpose. 
The third thing, and this has nothing to do with line management, is that is we have to speak more openly and empathetically about mental health. Mm. Of course, COVID has 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 thrown all of this right uh, up in the air and revealed this to organizations. But you know, until 16 months ago, when many organizations talked about health and wellness, what they really meant was you can't carry a mug of water when you're walking down the stairs, right? It was just about workplace safety rather than genuine awareness, responses to, and protection of their people around their mental health. Mm. And of course, COVID has made those issues more transparent and more acute. And organizations, I think, are starting to respond, but even some are still very slow uh, at that. But you know, like so many of, issue, of these issues similar to those of, of mental health, don't wait until it's a crisis. Mm. Be proactive and think about how you are fostering good mental wellness in your organization before someone comes to you. Yeah. You know, in in the midst of yeah. in the midst of a of, of a crisis. You know, I find on that topic, especially sometimes, if you're in a leadership position where you have the authority or the ability to make decisions around just for lack of a better description, like time off or flexibility, sometimes you need to be speculative in giving your employees the space. Mm -hmm. Not because you think, oh, they're in crisis right now, but just you're like, I'm going to do this so that in the the 15% chance that this path might lead to a battle, I'm going to try to head that off right now. Yeah, And that that can be very counterintuitive. I was speaking to a leader recently that gave, uh, they gave their employee a week off just for mental health. And the reason I was speaking to them is uh, that employee emailed me and said, hey, uh, I got this week off, but my the leader is still emailing me. This is not helpful. And their heart was yeah. in the right place, but they just didn't know, they didn't know how to, how do I balance this? And that's just a tough, that's tough, but it's to have that mindset of speculative help, I think is, could be beneficial. Many organizations, unfortunately, they, this goes back to the philosophy of management. Too many bosses' philosophy is still push my people as hard as they can yeah. until they collapse. And when they collapse, I will demonstrate empathy and say, oh, I'm going to yes. give you a week off. Yes. Yeah. That's unconscionable. We have a policy at Leading with Nice. Uh, there's, you know, there's three employees plus me, so it's, not, it's easier to control. Uh, we do not allow half-day vacations. Yeah. Because, and I'll say, I say that, but because... If you need a half day to go to the dentist, just go to the dentist. Like, don't right. don't give me a 0.5 vacation request. I, that's not vacation. <laughs> Save your vacation days for actual vacation. <laughs> if you need to go shopping for a birthday, go to the mall. Right. If that half day turns into a whole day, I know you're going to get it later. But we just they have the freedom to not have to worry about saying, "Oh, do you mind if I take a morning off?" Like, no. Yeah. What? Go C completely. We all work remotely. You know, it'd be very creepy if I knew you're coming and going, right. right? Because that means I'd be like spying on your house. So, okay, last question. Because, dude, man, like I, as I was reading about you, and, and even more so uh, after our conversation, I gotta know, like, what was it for you that inspired you into this field of study? Like, what drives you? What do you, you know, what's your golden thread? Yeah, it, well, well, it's 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 related to what I've mentioned that I think you know, or, our organizations need to become more human centric. Mm. You know that that certainly has been a common thread throughout my career, particularly related in consulting and and in executive education. But I, I would go further and say, ultimately, why I do what I do today is to help organizations contribute more joy to the workplace. 
Okay, so where did you get that? Like, where did you experience that or not, or on the conversely not experience that you wanted to like pursue that with the passion you have? Well, I I guess I've experienced both. Mm. (laughs) So, so I know it's possible. Yeah. The funny thing is, you know, too often I, my very first career was in the arts, particularly Mm. in, in theater as a director mainly. And I noticed that, you know, often those experiences were on the whole joyful. Not always, of course, but but frequently, and and generally, in workplaces, I found that you don't encounter those joyful moments nearly as often. And I don't believe, I can't believe, that that difference in joyful moments is solely down to well, Adam, theater. That's the arts. That always happens when you work in creative industries, because actually, all creative industries are are emphasizing certain um, qualities that bring us joy in the same way that other things bring us joy in other elements of, of, of work. So, so, so I believe that, or, that every organization has the imperative, has the mandate to think about how they can make their, their workplace a, a source of great joy because I think that serves not just employees, but customers, clients, partners, suppliers, regulators, shareholders, you name it. When I find commercial organizations that attempt to maximize joy internally and for their customers. Those organizations, funny enough, also do incredibly well financially. Mm. So there's no trade-off here. Cool. All right, Adam, where can people find out more about you and get a copy of your book? Yeah, well, my my website is the easiest way to to reach me. Very simple, adamkingle.com, all one word. My book, Next Generation Leadership, is available globally uh, at all good online and uh, in-person book retailers near you. Uh, it's available, I should say, in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. Cool beans. Who did who did the audio? Did you read it yourself, or did you hire somebody? I didn't. No, no. The, my publisher uh, has has a, they have a, a fleet of of, of actors who, who did it. Yes. So so funny funny point there that the person who read my book is 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 based in Tennessee. So people might uh, listen to that and think, oh, Adam has a slight Southern accent. Not true. <laughs> Amazing. That's great. And just uh, it's a d a m k i n g l dot com. Uh, before we go, I have a team that I love that helps me get it. Go and I want to thank them. Naomi Grossman, I mentioned her already. She helps me research and write questions. Jamie Hunter, if you see this online, he's a content manager. He's the guy that's put it all out over social. Carrie Cotton, she is running the business while I'm sitting here having conversations with really cool people. Thank you, Carrie. Uh, and Carrie, by the way, on this matter, um, uh, recently uh, I said, here's a project for you and just kind of get it done when you want. She's like, why do you give me such freedom and flexibility over when I do this? And I said, oh, I, I don't think you'd work for me if I made you do it in certain hours. And she said, you're right. <laughs> so she is ex- she is the living proof of what Adam and I talked about. Carrie, I love the work you do. Thank you. Austin Pomeroy is the audio editor. He makes us sound amazing. If you've seen video of this online, that was Jeff Anhorn cutting it together, putting it together. Cindy Craig does all the booking and makes sure guests get into a, a right time slot and lets me know when to show up. And of course, Allison, my wife, just makes my life amazing so I can um, do stuff like this. So I want to thank all those people. But of course, Adam, this podcast would be very boring if it was just me <laughs> talking about you. So thank you for taking time today. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks so much. For more on this, visit leadingwithnice.com. We'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.